Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Now, be honest, how many of you would rather watch the rest of the movie than hear me talk about it? <laughs> I'm not offended. The Shawshank Redemption is like one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. How many of you have seen it, actually, in its entirety? Right? Okay, yeah. If you, it consistently is in the top 50 films, uh, and every time it's played on TV, I can't, like, resist. It draws you in. You know, I'll be channel surfing. It's on TBS, and I'm, forget it. I've got to watch the whole thing. Powerful movie. Uh, deep Christian themes of hope and redemption in the midst of crushing circumstances. And it's really the one old school classic we picked to include in our current series. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is part five of Hollywood Jesus, Glimpses of God on the Silver Screen, in which we're taking a look at God and spiritual faith through the lens of great films and media. And for the most part, we focus on like, you know, current hits like 24, Little Miss Sunshine. But I wanted to include the Shawshank Redemption, even though it came out in the mid-90s, because I believe it has something profound to teach us about hope. What, what true hope is in the midst of crushing circumstances. Go ahead, go back one, would you? Now, I'm guessing most of you are not convicted felons, okay? Uh, and if you are, that's great. We'll just keep an eye on you during the offering. Uh, but we all face situations and circumstances in our lives that from time to time can seem hopeless, or at least trying, kind of testing our face, tempting us to give up or throw in the towel in despair. Uh, as I said, it doesn't have to be legal troubles. It could be a situation at work. Uh, or at home, or, or that it's stressful causing you to lose hope, or draining your joy. could be a health crisis kind of sapping your strength, or, or a relationship that's a source of conflict or stress and just has your heart troubled today. Uh, in a crowd this size, there are all sorts of crises among us that can cause our faith to waver and experience heartache. Uh, I'll give you a live example from our church family here at Liquid. Some of you know Matt and Amy Stauffer. Uh, they're good friends in one of our growing young families at Liquid. Now, this is the picture of them with their children. You see Luke there is about seven, Molly's five, and you might recognize the two boys, Ty and Troy. Now, for those of you who were with us in January, we actually had the privilege of dedicating Ty and Troy to God uh, here at Liquid. And they, it was awesome because we had the whole family up here and they were on the stage and it was like monkeys out of a barrel, just kind of spilling, you know, just excellent. Well, their youngest son, Ty, who turns three in August, is facing a pretty serious uh, health challenge. Um, Ty has sagittal synostosis, which means that his skull is actually hardening before his brain has had a chance to grow. And that's a serious problem because it causes the head to elongate. You can see from the top and, and increases blood pressure at the, in the brain. And if untreated, it can lead to emotional and uh, possible learning disabilities. So Amy and Matt have scheduled an operation for Ty. Uh, Amy sent me an email detailing the situation. And she told me it would be okay to share with you since she's like, well, this is our spiritual family. Here's what she wrote. She said, on May 22nd, our little boy Ty will have a five-hour surgery with a pediatric neurosurgeon. They'll cut a zigzag from ear to ear and peel back the skin to expose the skull. They'll separate the jugular from the skull, and that's the risky part. Then they'll cut his skull, put it to the side, and rebuild it with dissoluble plates. Put a rounded skull back on his head and close him up. He'll have at least two blood transfusions, type A positive, and he'll need donors. He'll stay in ICU for five days more. He will swell a lot. His eyes will actually swell shut for three days, and he won't even be able to see. Poor thing. Then we come home and try to lay low and keep his head safe. Hopefully they'll take only one surgery. I'll keep you posted as the date gets closer, but Matt and I would so appreciate prayer leading up to and during the surgery and afterward. I would love the Liquid Church family to pray with us during the surgery or before if anybody's so led. Thanks, friends. Amy and Matt Stauffer. You know, I have to admit, when Amy and Matt first described the situation, it took, it, it took the breath out of me. I, I mean, that's a serious challenge, you know, the health crisis of a young one. And it could easily cause you to question God. 
or to lose hope. Yet, if you've met the scoffers, you know that they are like far from hopeless or downcast. In fact, they remain tremendously upbeat in the face of this latest challenge. It's funny, I saw Amy this morning, and, uh, and she was coming in, and, uh, and I saw she had a smile on her face in, in classic Stauffer fashion, a Starbucks in her hand. I was like, Amy, how are you doing? And she's like, hey, you know what? Okay, one day at a time, and today's a good day. <laughs> and if you're here late on Sunday nights, you'd see her husband Matt around. Matt serves on our tech team, and he stays late each Sunday to help tear down this stage and equipment and pack it up at the end of the night. I'm an incredible guy. In the midst of the needs of his own family, he's focusing on the needs of others, serving all of us here. And I often kind of just, like, walk away from them thinking to myself, like, how, how could they not be in a total panic? You know, a situation like that would just devastate many of us. Cripple you with the fear of, of what ifs. And it's like, where does this hope come from in their lives? I mean, if you're facing a situation that's like heavy or intimidating or your circumstances seem crushing, where do you find hope? I mean, is it just like positive thinking? Like, well, just put on a happy face. Today I want to talk to you about finding hope and joy in the midst of crushing circumstances. And that's why I picked the Shawshank Redemption, because it tells the story of a banker named Andy Dufresne who's framed for a double murder in the 1940s, and he begins a life sentence at this fictional Shawshank prison. It's a prison film. Shawshank's pretty tough, as you saw. And during his long stretch in prison, Andy suffers greatly. He's actually unjustly accused. He's an innocent man. He's beaten and assaulted, just physically devastated, emotionally deprived, and yet he comes to be admired by the other inmates for one thing, this unquenchable sense of hope in the face of crushing circumstances. In fact, the tagline for the movie, you can actually see it on the poster there. You see it? Fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. Well, I want to look at three stories going on here. We'll double back to the Stoffers in a few minutes. But I want to track with this theme of hope in the midst of despair in both scriptures as well as Shawshank. Now, I mean, when you talk about hope or joy in the middle of crushing circumstances, you always go to one book. The book of Philippians, actually, in scripture. Because Philippians is actually a book of tremendous hope and joy, even though it was written from... Does anyone know where Philippians was written? From a prison. Yeah. And we're going to turn up the lights for you, if you would, actually over there on the side there, Vince, um, so that you can follow along. We've put that in your, in your bulletin here, the scripture notes. Um, this is actually a prison letter that the Apostle Paul wrote when he was shackled and locked up unjustly. A little bit more there, Vince. And it just kind of oozes joy and hope, which is kind of strange considering his circumstances. So you can turn to Philippians 1, 12 through 26. If you don't have that, again, you can just follow along in the notes. It's got most of the passages we'll look at today printed on it. And just to give you a back of background, Paul had every reason to be unhappy or unjoyful. Uh, by this point in his life, the Apostle Paul had spent four years in prison. Falsely accused, unjustly charged, and he spent two years in a prison in a place called Caesarea. And then they were going to send him to Rome to put him on trial by that Christian-loving Caesar, Nero. <laughs> Nero was no fan of Christians. Well, Paul was actually headed to Rome to be executed, so he took him out of prison, and as they're transporting him here, guess what happens? He's in a shipwreck. His, 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 literally, shipwreck. And he, he, he somehow survives that wreck and manages to swim to shore, and then he washes up on a deserted desert island, and there he's bitten by a poisonous snake. Now, he survives that, and finally somebody comes along and picks him up, and he's taken to Rome and spends another two years in a prison there, waiting to be executed by Nero. Now, during that time, he had a Roman praetorian guard literally chained to him 24 hours a day. Every four hours, they changed the guard. So for two years, he had absolutely no privacy. For four years, he's been in prison for a false charge when he writes this. Do you think he has a reason to be unhappy? Yeah, tough day at the office. (laughs) Yet he writes this in Philippians from his cell. Read with me, verses 12 through 26 of the first chapter. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. I mean, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yeah, and I'll continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what should I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary to you that I remain here in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of of me. Again, this is just like an incredible letter when you consider this is written from prison. That's a postcard from prison. <laughs> I mean, you don't expect a jailbird <laughs> or anyone in a tight spot they didn't ask for to use the words like joy and hope to describe your attitude. Yet Paul actually uses the word joy 16 times throughout Philippians. And his attitude towards this situation is some of the best in verse 18. I rejoice, yeah, and I will continue to rejoice. It's like, what? How in the world could he do that? How could he maintain such a positive attitude in such negative and discouraging circumstances? What's his secret? Well, there are three essentials that Paul highlights in this passage that I'm kind of calling how to be joyful no matter what. Three key ingredients you need in your life to retain when your, your hope when crises hit. And the first really is you need a perspective to live from. You need a clear point of view, an accurate understanding that you're, uh, the situation you're facing from God's perspective. Because the fact is, you're actually always going to have problems in life. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is reality, this is obvious. Even if you get out of one problem, it's like there's another one kind of waiting right around the corner. See, but here's the deal. We know that, but most of us have this, like, misconception that if I could just change the situation I'm facing, like right now, think of the, the stressful situation you're facing. If I could just change that, then I'll be happy, right? If I could just get out of prison or out of this job or out of this school or out of this relationship, then I'd be happy. But the truth is, if you're only going to be happy once all your problems are solved, then guess what? You're never going to be happy. <laughs> you actually have to learn to be happy in the circumstance. It's interesting. That word happy, by the way, comes from the word happenstance. That's where we get the word circumstance from. In other words, happiness is about your situation. It depends on your circumstances. It's external. It depends on outside forces. So it's like, hey, I go to Disneyland. I'm happy. Oh, I'm leaving Disneyland. I'm not happy. Okay? External. But Paul doesn't talk about happiness. He talks about joy and hope. And that's different. Because that's internal. It's from the inside. And its presence in our life all depends on our perspective. Let me see. How many of you agree that how you look at a situation determines how you're going to make through it? All right? I mean, you can, yeah, you can take two people in the same situation. One is devastated and the other sails through it. Maybe even grows from it. It's all in how you look at the problem. And Paul says this. He says, I've got to get God's perspective on what's happened to me if I'm going to learn how to be joyful no matter what. I've got to see it from his point of view. And, see, and give me eyes to see what you see. Well, what was God's perspective on Paul's situation? Verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
And you really see Paul hits this crisis head on. He's like, what's happened to me? Well, what's happened to him? Just what happened to Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption. Innocent man, falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned, life sentence. Life cut short. Boom. Unfairly. And let prison simply serve as a stand-in, by the way, for all the things that hit us in life that threaten to drain the life out of us. As I mentioned earlier, an illness or a diagnosis can seem like a prison sentence. Or a marriage that's going through some rocky times. Or you're in a job that seems dead and you have no jobs and it's like, it weighs on you, it's sucking the life out of you. But Paul's joy was based on his perspective and he saw the best even the worst. He actually saw God working in his problem. He's like, what's happened to me is externally upsetting. But it has some benefits if you take the time to look at it as God sees it. If you look at the text, he says, I see two main benefits of my being in prison. In the first place, being in here has given me an inside opportunity to share Christ with key people. Verse 13. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard (laughs) and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now check this out. He was chained 24 hours a day to a Praetorian guard. Now here's the deal. Praetorian guard... The palace guard, these were the crack elite troops of the Roman Empire. I want you to think Secret Service, Navy SEAL training, CIA intelligence, like Jack Bauer on speed, okay? They were handpicked by Caesar. They were actually his bodyguards. The highest paid people in the entire Roman Empire. They would actually serve for 12 years, and after 12 years, they would retire, and they were automatically made leaders in the Roman Empire after retirement. In other words, there was not a more strategic group of people Paul could have witnessed to. And he has one chained to him 24 hours a day for two years. God brings the most influential people in Rome to Paul, chains them to him, and lets Nero pay for it. Incredible. I imagine every Roman guard who comes in, he's chained to Paul for the next 24 hours. Paul looks at him and says, hey, we got a little time. Heard about Jesus. <laughs> and he'd share Christ with him. That's what I call a captive audience, right? <laughs> and these guys took out to watch Paul do actually something incredible. He's always scribbling these letters, always writing what we come to know as the new... Testament. In fact, the Bible says in the fourth chapter of this book that the news spread through the whole palace and actually many of Nero's family became believers. And history tells us that Nero actually had his mother, his wife, and his children killed because they became Christians. Talk about a chain reaction. The second thing Paul says is, My attitude hasn't only helped people come to know Christ, but it's encouraged other believers to be bold. Look at verse 14. It says, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Courage is contagious. You guys know that. And Paul was bold in his problems in spite of his crippling circumstance externally and encouraged other people to be bold. Now here's the point. When you or I face a problem joyfully, two things happen according to Paul. It impacts unbelievers. People who don't know Jesus at all are deeply impacted when they watch how you respond. And secondly, it encourages believers. When I face a problem with joy, it's a testimony. It's it's a story. It's a witness to people who don't know God because they see you under pressure and they see your response and they're like, what in the world has she got that I don't have? You ever encountered someone like that? As I said, I saw Amy Stauffer coming to church this morning and she had a smile on her face and it wasn't plastic. It was genuine. I just shook my head. I'm like, how is this possible? There must be something going on here. Either she's a great faker. Or drawing on a deeper source of strength that's giving her energy and peace when she has every right to be paralyzed or fearful. And in fact, that's the case with Amy. She wrote on me on Friday. She said this. She said, you know what, Tim? She's like, I believe that Ty is God's child first. It is my privilege to have him to raise on earth. But I trust that God will be with Ty and guard him. And I will pray that God gives me more time with Ty and heals him entirely. I worry about nothing 
And I'm not anxious because I have prayed to God. And I have asked. And now He is in charge. He knows how much I love time. And folks, that courageous perspective will be a witness, I guarantee it, to all of the doctors and the nurses who are involved in the care and treatment of that little boy later this month. You know, it's like Ty has an appointment at the hospital, but I'm guessing the people at the hospital who don't know God have an appointment as well. And it's going to come through the Stauffer family, and there are many friends here who will be present to encourage and support them through it. And it may not be the way we choose, but what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, writes Paul. That's an, that's an incredible perspective. I'm able to look beyond the temporal crisis, difficult or heart-wrenching as it may be, and believe that there's this eternal benefit being arranged by God, even though I may not see it, it's there. The testimony on believers, says Paul. Uh, the second thing is that it's an encouragement to Christians. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in everything, all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. That's true in any problem. You go back to the text, some of you know, the Apostle Paul is like an activist. I mean, he actually wanted to go to Rome, but here's the deal. He wanted to go to Rome to the Colosseum to preach to hundreds and thousands of people. Instead, God put him in prison and brought the key leaders to him. And that other little detail, while he's under house arrest, he writes this little thing that we come to know as the New Testament. <laughs> you tell me which had greater effect. Because God allowed Paul to be put on the shelf for four years, he wrote a large portion of the New Testament scriptures that you hold in your hands. And that wasn't easy. If you look at verses 15 through 18, you learn Paul actually has critics. You know, people love to kick you when you're down. And his enemies used the occasion of his imprisonment to build their own reputation. They took a few pot shots at Paul. And he's like, you know what, here's the deal. I'm not only in prison. I'm looking at verse 15, 16. I'm not only in prison, but there are other quack ministers out there who are jealous of me. <laughs> and they're attacking me and criticizing me, trying to destroy his ministry. Again, you know, you guys know this. Critique is another hope robber. You, wanna, you ever get criticized at work? You know, misunderstood and people just kind of rip you. Man, just just sucks the joy out of you. Let me ask, why? How do you typically respond to that? You like want to set the record straight. You want to get even. You want to strike back. Most of us at least want to defend ourselves. But how does Paul respond? Look at verse 18. You talk about perspective. But, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's like, I'm not going to let anyone steal my joy. I don't have time to fuss over people who criticize or misunderstand me. As long as the message about Jesus in my life is getting out, who cares? The message is getting out. People are hearing about Jesus. Again, that's an incredible perspective. Paul's like, the eternal mission takes precedent over the current crisis. What's the point? God has a purpose behind every problem in this room. You believe that? Every one of them that you have. And when you get that perspective, that takes faith, that behind every problem you face, God has an eternal purpose. You are well on your way to understanding how to be joyful no matter what. But you first need a perspective to live from. There's a quote printed in your notes by Vaclav Havel. He's the first modern Czechoslovakian president and playwright. He says this, Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Most of us think that, like, hope is like, oh, I just hope this kind of works. I hope. No. I hope because I believe no matter what happens here, God is behind it. Do you have a certainty like that? That transcends circumstance? Could you believe even today, this afternoon, that God's behind whatever it is you're going through? A relationship breakup, a financial shortfall, a loss of health or a job, and that God has a purpose behind it? Paul did. And it was the number one ingredient of living with hope. Now, the second thing Paul highlighted is that we need actually a power to live on. 
life can wear you down. Amen? <laughs> Especially if you have preschoolers. There's this cartoon in the newspaper. Um, it's kind of funny. It had this lady standing at the door. Moms, maybe you can identify. And she's standing there in a bathroom, but she's got curlers in her hair. And they're just like hanging down limp. And she's got all these lines on her face. And she's like tired and worn out, fatigued. She's totally stressed out. She's got a baby on like one hip. just kind of, you know, screaming. And there's a dog barking at her feet. She's got two preschoolers grabbing her robe. And, and she's standing there looking totally drained, like totally haggard. And the man at the front door, is he's holding a clipboard. He's a census taker. And, he, and the caption says, what do you mean you're undecided? All I asked was, do you live here? <laughs> you know, some of you came here today ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel. You're ready to give up on your marriage or, or maybe you give up on your dream of getting married. Ready to give up on your career, the kids, I don't think they'll ever change, whatever. Give up on yourself, your education or getting that house or getting out of debt. You've given all you've got and it doesn't seem to make any difference and you feel powerless to change the situation. That's the way Paul felt. His life was no longer in his control. The last four years, he'd been totally powerless, but he says, I remain joyful no matter what. And it's like, where do you get that kind of strength? Where's the power for that? Paul cites two sources. Look at verses 19 through 20. Let's read this together. I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Would you notice two things? Paul says he has two sources of strength. And what's the first one? Your prayers. The prayers of his fellow believers were a source of strength. I mean, that's obvious, right? We, we need to pray for each other. That's why we have a church. We get to know each other and carry each other's burdens when life gets heavy. But then he says, the help of God's Spirit, the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you have the prayers of others and you've got the Spirit of Christ strengthening you, empowering you, then you can have hope even when it feels like life is crushing you in. Notice he says, I eagerly expect and hope. Circle that word hope. You have to have hope to cope in life. It's interesting. Cornell University did a study of 25,000 prisoners of war from World War II. And they discovered that human beings have actually a tremendous capacity to withstand pain, pressure, and problems as long as they have one thing. Hope. But when they lose hope, that's it. It's over. As the Spanish proverb goes, hope dies last. Where do you get the kind of hope to keep on keeping on when you're like, you know, I am stressed out. I am about to lose it. The situation is overwhelming, depressing. I don't see any end in sight. And according to Paul, he's like, you get it from two spots. The prayers of others and the power of God's spirit in your heart. There are, those are the two catalysts of hope. Let's take first the prayers of others. In Romans 12, Paul expands on how this is interrelated to joy and hope in crisis. Look at this. Paul writes, let's read this together out loud. Ready? Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Take, just take it apart. Look what Paul's doing. He's like, Paul's like, joy and hope. These are integrally connected in his mind. And in the context he's talking about it is trauma, right? Or troubling circumstance. Be patient in affliction. But then he says, don't just put on a pretend smile, a happy or a brave face to the crowd. I'm not talking about sucking it up. That's not what Christians do when crisis hits. But rather, be faithful in prayer. One of the reasons I'm sharing you the situation with the Stauffer family today is because they've asked me to get as many people in this church family praying for Ty as possible. They believe in the power of prayer to move God. And so this is an invitation to all of you to begin praying this week, tomorrow, Monday morning, for that little boy's quick and complete recovery. That's what we're asking God for as a church family. We want to see Jesus heal him. 
And he is free to use the doctors, the operation, the medicines, whatever. I am praying for Ty's full recovery. And Amy and Matt wanted me to ask you to join us. So okay, just real quick, can I see a, a, a hands of folks who are willing to do that? Starting tomorrow, even if you don't know the Stoffers, you'll pray for Ty leading up to the operation on the 22nd. Thank you. Folks, that's what a church is for. It is literally an extended spiritual family. And each of us needs that kind of shared care, especially when crisis hits. The idea is you have to be part of a family because it makes it lighter because others carry your burdens for you. And you can pray for Matt. And you can pray for Amy, their entire family, for like peace to accompany them over the next couple weeks. But now notice something. Look at Paul's logic. This is where it's important. What's he say next? He says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And this is a direct extension of prayer. There's like logic going on here. At Liquid, we kind of have this saying around a church. We're like, always pray for others and always be ready to be the answer to others' prayers. In other words, it's not just about a few quick words dashed off in the morning when God brings someone in need to mind, but it's about spending time in God's presence. So that He like quickens your spirit and awakens you to tangible ways you can be the answer to other people's prayers. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And some of you are like, wait a minute, what is, wait, what? You're losing me. What does hospitality have to do with the hospital? <laughs> See, Christian hospitality differs from social entertaining. If you've ever had people over to your place, you know what entertaining is. It focuses on the host, right? Your home has to be spotless. The food well prepared. The host has got to be relaxed, good natured. Uh-uh. Biblical hospitality, by contrast, focuses not on the host, but on the guests. Their needs, whether for a place to stay, nourishing food, a listening ear, the needs of the person in crisis are the primary concern. And the point is, you don't just pray for your Christian brothers and sisters in need, but you say, Lord, how can I be the answer to their prayers? Again, let's make this real time in our church family right here. I asked Amy and Matt what we could do to help or support them through the weeks ahead, and here's what they told me. Amy wrote, as far as needs, prayer is a big one. The surgery is Tuesday, May 22nd, right now for 10.30 a.m., And I'm wondering if people would be willing to come and pray with us at the hospital that day. Or from their home or their work that day. The surgery is about five hours long. The beginning is the riskiest. But would they pray to God to keep Ty's brain safe from surgical tools? And that the blood transfusions are clean? I wonder if our church family would be able to pray for the time leading up to it, during it, and after the surgery. Maybe a 12-hour block or something like that. Prayer. The sofas are like, they're in a spot where they know that's the most critical thing. But then they're also like practically blood donors. Try will need several transfusions of type A positive blood, blood. Email or call me to add names to the list. Some donors haven't been allowed to contribute because of things. So maybe a few more would be safe for the transfusions. Real practical way to be an answer to prayer. Now, the next one I love because this is so real life. Amy's like, what? I'm like, what else, Amy? What other needs? She's like, Starbucks. Um, I love this. I, I, she's like, I don't want to say it. And I was like, no, tell me. She goes, I know this might sound really shallow, but if anybody would bring Starbucks to Matt and me for those first couple days, it would be nice to see a supportive friend and pray and be renewed in a triple venti skim three-pump toffee nut latte. <laughs> it will be the small things that help us through the ICU time. Hospitality. That's a modern-day version of Christian hospitality. Can someone do a Starbucks run? Or help with their other kids. That's what she said, the last thing. She actually said, if the ICU time falls over the weekend, it'd be great if somebody could take our other kids to church. Ty will come home after about a week and have to lay low for two more weeks. So that's complicated and could be an area where people could help. I may need to run out to help with other children's activities or take a break. I'm going to make a schedule next week. My kids have lots of stuff and then normal homework and play time. Would some of you be willing to do any of these things? 
To, 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 this morning we had some people who were like, I'm a positive, I can donate blood. Or bring their kids to church. Or bring a double mocha cinnamon latte to Amy, you know, in the ICU. That is a modern day version of Christian hospitality. We laugh, but you know what? There's great power in that. And it's not just the caffeine. Paul says, God provides strength and hope to his family through the generosity of his brothers and sisters. We just came, we had, some of you were at it. How many of you were at our spring membership brunch earlier today? Okay, we had a great time, nice lunch. Why do you join a church? Because you are never alone when you have a church family to surround you. Especially in times of crisis or situations that challenge your faith. You know, some people are like, you know, well, I just kind of do faith on my own. It's just like me and Jesus, I'd pop in once. Who, who visits you in the hospital? The invisible pastor, you know? You're going to actually have a chance to, um, to sign up to help the staffers at the end of our service today to indicate that on your connection card. But I'll get back to that in a minute. But that's the first source of strength, Paul says. Prayer and hospitality from God's people. Don't just pray for others. Be willing to be the answers to their prayers. Now, if you go back out to Paul's original verse in, in verses 19 there, he says the second thing is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny, but, but many people go through a tough situation, kind of buy into the world's perspective that says, well, you know what? Wow. Think about the thing you're facing. I've had friends tell me this. They're like, dude, that's huge. Man, you're going to have to really like, look inside and, and reach deep down to get through this. <laughs> In other words, what's your source of like, you know, power and strength for the current crisis? And you might be like, well, my hope is in myself. Be serious. Your hope is in yourself. Folks, you need a power far greater than yourself that you can rely on and pull into so that when your spiritual and emotional batteries are flat out dead, there's a power source that's unlimited supply you can plug into. God's answer to the personal energy crisis is actually a few chapters over in Philippians 4.13. I have the strength to face all conditions by the power that Christ gives me. Does that include financial difficulties? Yes. Does that include relational difficulties? Yes. Does that include health issues? Yes, yes. In every area, I have the power to face all conditions, Paul writes, by looking down deep inside. No. By the power that Christ gives me. You want a great example, by the way, of the Spirit's power under pressure? If you flip over, if you have your Bible, flip over to Acts 16, if you have your Bible. Again, Paul did not have an easy go of it in his life. This is kind of a funny thing. I don't want to like, sell you the wrong thing here, guys. But it's not like you become a Christian, like everything is now hunky-dory. From the moment Paul became a follower of Jesus, his life became more difficult, not easier. And through all his suffering and tribulations, he relied on the Spirit of Jesus to give him strength. I'm not going to read this whole account, but Acts 16, uh, verses 22 through 34, record how Paul and his buddy Silas were visiting the town of Philippi. That's where this letter is, Philippians is written to. Get that? Philippi, Philippians. Okay. And they go there to preach the news about Jesus. And it stirred up the whole town leaders and unbelieving people. And they actually got so PO'd at Paul that there was a mob scene. They physically attacked Paul. And verse 22 recounts this. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, that's whipped, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Again, pretty harsh stuff. So Paul, God says, Paul, I've got part for you in my story. Paul's like, I'll play. And he walks in there, he's attacked by a mob. He's arrested unjustly, he's whipped viciously, and according to Acts, he's thrown actually into solitary confinement. The, the, yeah, tough day at the office, hmm? <laughs> But what's their response? This is where it's like, what am I reading? It's incredible. Look at verse 25. About midnight. Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And at this point you're like, what? Paul and Silas, they just got the crap kicked out of them. And they're humming Dave Crowder songs. Oh, praise him. You know what? What? These guys are nuts. Where, Where do they get this? I mean, singing in a jail cell? It's like the last place you'd expect to hear sounds of music. And you know it was loud. It said they were in the inner cell, solitary confinement, and the other prisoners could hear them. And it's like, what do you think the other prisoners thought? They're like hanging there. They're like, who, what, who is here? <laughs> they having a karaoke session in solitary confinement? I mean, when you're in a dark place, a situation that seems crushing to your spirit, what happens when other inmates hear a fellow prisoner emit music in the midst of their misery? I want you to watch this clip and listen to the power of hope in crushing circumstances.
telling you to pray. Turn that off. Singing <laughs> in the prison is actually just the soundtrack of hope. <laughs> and the only thing that gives us hope to sing in dark places, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When Paul and Silas were beaten down and thrown to prison in Acts 16, he, they responded by singing, and we don't relate to that. This is like hard to make sense of except to say that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom that transcends your situation, Because you have a sense in your soul that, you know what, what I see is this is not all there is. There's more than the troubles and crises of this life. And that God's Spirit has the power to weave my problem into His plan. Again, we don't have time to read the whole account here in Acts, but what happens as a result of Paul and Silas' little jailbird hymn sing is a violent earthquake that shakes the foundation of the prison. It says, at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, no, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Again, incredible. Brian, if you could turn the lights up a little bit just so we can read the scripture there. God supplies the Spirit to breathe hope in the midst of crushing circumstances. And what happens when God's people respond in joy? Change, lives change. Of people who are watching. And this is the demonstration of what we learned earlier. When you respond with joy in the face of suffering, guess what? It's one of the most powerful testimony to folks who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. Something even greater than your earthly crisis can happen. Eternity for others can change because of what you're going through. It says that at the hour of the night, the jailer took him, washed their wounds, and immediately he and his family were baptized. They were filled with joy. They set a meal before him because they became to believe in God. What flows out of belief? More joy. More hospitality. You see how this works? It's like God was like, the church that I'm creating, it's going to be a community of people who are under siege in this world, but they're going to respond in God's strength to crisis, and hope is going to spread like a virus through them. Friends, I don't know why you're here this afternoon. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe you actually didn't want to come. Or, or maybe you're struggling with something huge. And maybe you don't believe that God cares about your problems. He does. And He doesn't just want to change your circumstances. He wants to do more than that. He wants to change you. He can change your situation, but first He wants to change your heart. And you have to be willing to actually say, you know what, life is too much for me on my own. I need someone bigger and stronger and more powerful than me to deal with. It. That's who Jesus is. God came down in the flesh and that's what he came, why he came to earth so you wouldn't be alone anymore and instead could live a new kind of life with his spirit in your heart and hope actually in your soul. And if you'd like to do that, if you want to invite God into your life, into your circumstances, into your heart, it isn't complicated. I mean, the Philippian jailer, he goes to Paul, he's like, what, what do I have to do to be saved? <laughs> and Paul replies simply, let's read this together. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's all you have to do to invite God into your life and enter His family. To put your trust in Jesus Christ. Your confidence that He is God 
That Jesus is Lord and, and you want Him to be master of your life. What that means? It, means? it means believing in your heart that actually when He came to earth, He came to die for you. And that His resurrection is the source of hope in this world. And by His sacrifice, you can be set free because you have knowledge of eternity before you. Last Sunday was an incredible Sunday for our church. We had five people invite Jesus into their life for the first time last Sunday. Just awesome. And I just want to give you a chance to do that this afternoon if you've never done so before. So you can just kind of bow your head for just a minute. Again, it's not complicated, it's not hard, but if you're here today, God's speaking to you, you're at the point where you're like, I need something bigger. Jesus is it. You can simply pray, God, I need you in my life. And I'm going to take a step of faith here and believe that Jesus is your only son and that he died for me and I want him in my heart. Would you please give me your spirit in my heart to now live for you and follow you and have hope. In Jesus' name, amen. If, if, you, if, you, if you prayed that with your heart, it's not reciting a formula, you, you mean that with your heart, Welcome to the family of God. You not only have new brothers and sisters who are committed to care for you, you have a new power source. The Bible tells us that at the moment of salvation, God actually sets His own spirit into our hearts to give us a new perspective, a new power for living, and that's really what Paul's getting at. right? The key to joyful living is a new perspective to live from, a new power to live on, and finally, a new purpose to live for. That's the last thing that Paul highlights here. You know, when Paul wrote Philippians, um, he was old, he was in prison, and he was actually awaiting imminent death by execution. They'd taken away every single thing he had, taken away his friends, his ministry, his freedom, even his privacy. For two years, he had someone chained to him for 24 hours. They lost everything. But there was one thing they could not take away from Paul. They couldn't take away his purpose for living. Look at verse 21. This is the linchpin of hope in the midst of hardship. This is reality for Paul. This is not a philosophical musing. This is reality. He says... See, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, he says, you know what, as long as I live, my purpose on this earth is to live for Jesus, because when I die, it's gain. I'm going to heaven. I am out of here. There will be no more chains, no more problems, no more heartache. He's like, my purpose is clear. Whether I live or if I die, the goal is to exalt Jesus in my life and make Christ famous through the way I approach life on this planet. Now let me ask you, that's Paul's credo. How would you fill in this blank? How would you fill this in? For me to live is... What would you say? What would you say, honestly? I mean, if you watch TV, you look at the commercials, you can pretty much figure out what American culture says, you know. I'd guess that Americans would fill in this blank with one of, you know, three things. Some Americans would say, well, for me to live is possessions, right? The whole purpose of life is, 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 is getting stuff. I've got to get more and more and more, and the ones who dies with the most toys wins, Right? <laughs> It's on the, it's on like, isn't it on like the coins? Life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. <laughs> that's the American way. I've got to get this product, that's going to make me happier. I've got to get that because it's going to make me sexy. And I've got to get that over there because it's going to answer all my problems. On and on. You know, the tragedy of living in New Jersey and in the, in the East Coast here, in affluent areas, is that we have many, many people in our neck of the woods who have so much to live on and nothing to live for. Some Americans would say, well, no, for me, to live is pleasure. <laughs> I just want to have fun. Feel good, you know, feel good, do it. Just anything gives me a thrill. I love to travel. I take vacations, you know, get drunk on the weekends, play golf. Anything that brings me pleasure. That's, that's it. I'm working real hard right now so I can stop working. 
and have fun for the rest of my life, play golf for the rest of my life. But that doesn't last either. <laughs> I mean, New York City, throw capital of the world. Any other week you can have the great escape. But in the morning, of course, it's back to the pits. Now, some people wouldn't say for me to live is possessions or for me to live is pleasure. They'd actually say for me to live is actually prestige. Power, status, popularity, position. I want other people to look up to me. The whole goal in life for many Americans is for other people to think, you're amazing. Look at you. So we go out and we, you know, dress for success. We drive to impress. and We pay for our power lunches with, you know, I've got a zirconium card. It's not gold. It's not plastic. Zirconium, you know. My little boy, he's three years old, and he's at the age where one of his favorite phrases is, Watch me, Daddy, look at me! You know? He goes out and swings, he's like, Look at me! You know? He jumps off the porch, he's like, Look at me! You know? He gets our dog in a stranglehold, Look at me! I'm like, Easy, you know? At age three, his deepest desire is my attention and approval. And the sad thing is, there's no shortage of adults doing that still. Look at me! <laughs> What, look at me, watch me by the kind of car I drive, watch by the way I dress, watch me by the way I fix up my home, watch me by, 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 by my, my, my job. By, their desperate plea for status says, for me to live is approval. I want to submit to you folks today that these three things are the weakest purposes for living. You were not put on this earth simply to live for the approval of other people. There are much more significant things than simply living for the applause of people who don't actually even give a rip. <laughs> You know, that's the irony of the whole thing. Most of the time that we're out there, look at me, look at me. You know why no one is looking at you? Because they're all going, look at me, look at me. <laughs> Rick Warren, he is a best-selling author of The Purpose Driven Life. He's a direct source for parts of this message. He, he, I love how he puts this. He puts it this way. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. The truth is that none of these things are going to last or satisfy permanently. Paul was like, I can have hope no matter what because I've got a bigger purpose. In Philippians 3, 13 and 14, he says, Forgetting what's behind and straightening toward what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In other words, the best use of your life is to invest it in something that's going to outlast it. And Paul's like, you aren't ready to live until you're ready to die. Sound familiar? One of my favorite lines from the Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. Paul's like, I am ready to finally live because I'm actually ready to die. I'm going to drop a shocker on you. New statistic. You ready? The mortality rate in America is now 100%. We all die. Yeah, I was watching an interview with John Edwards' wife. You know, she's battling cancer. And Katie Kirk was interviewing her. And she's like, what's it like, Mrs. Edwards, to live with an illness that's terminal? And it was so great because she kind of like crossed her leg. She goes, well, that's funny, Katie, because that's kind of the condition of all of us, isn't it? Aren't we all terminal? Insightful answer. Only a fool would go through life unprepared for something we know is inevitable. It doesn't make sense. We want to ignore the obvious in life. I remember when Colin and I were first looking at like life insurance, you know, stuff, and the sales guy says to us, he says, Mr. Lucas, let's suppose that someday you were going to die. <laughs> and I'm like, suppose? There's no supposition about it, man. Count on it. <laughs> You're not ready to live until you've thought about what's going to happen after you die. And that's why Paul says, hey, it's cool. I can be in prison. Because for me to live on this earth is, is Christ. I'll just keep sharing Jesus with these guards or whoever God brings into my life. I'll stay here to help and encourage you others. That's what he says in the end of Philippians here on this earth. I'll help you guys. But if I die, I've got assurance I'm going to 
be with Jesus in heaven. In the end, Paul has two great concerns. He's like, one, follow Christ, and two, help others. He's like, that's my life. Growing up, I remember my Sunday school teacher teaching me the secret of joy. Remember this one? The secret of joy? Put Jesus first, others second, yourself last. I mean, our culture says, no, you're first, right? That's the overarching philosophy. Folks, I want to suggest that the most countercultural thing you can do is put yourself third, put others above you, and put God first. That is radical. Why? Because every magazine, every book, every movie says, live for yourself. You've got to do what's best for you. I'm convinced that there is so much unhappiness in our culture because there's this total preoccupation with self. What's for me? What's best for me? But when you commit your life to a purpose greater than yourself that takes you out of yourself, all of a sudden, you got something more to live for than just making a buck or arranging for your next vacation. And you will have, Paul says, more joy than you can handle. You will actually discover the hope that God plants in the hearts of all who follow Him, who look at life from His perspective and give themselves to a purpose greater than themselves. Again, I don't know what you came to church carrying today what struggles you're going through, what you're going to face when you go home to, or you go to work tomorrow or you talk with him or her. But this, this, is, this is God's word of hope to you. Whatever you are going through, God cares. Whatever suffering or heartache that feels like it's going to crush you, you're not alone. Jesus has come and he sacrificed his life on the cross for yours. He's given you his spirit in his heart and set you in a spiritual family, the church, to give you strength when you're weak and overwhelmed. I want to just give you a minute to think how this applies to your own life. Which one of these three things is most challenging for you today? Look, look at those three things. The pers- a new perspective to live on. Is it the power that you're feeling, you're feeling impotent in your Christian life? Or have you settled for a second class kind of purpose? Just think about this. You, let's bow our heads actually. Let's just talk to God about these. Um, you have God's perspective on your problems. If, you, if you're like, my situation is hopeless, Tim. You don't get it. You, then you're looking at it from your own point of view. You could pray in your heart right now, God... Help me to see my problems from your perspective. Help me see what you're doing through all of this. I believe you have a purpose. Or maybe even trying to cope simply on your own power. You can pray, Jesus Christ, I need your power to keep going this next week, tomorrow, Monday morning. I'm trusting you to help me out. I need physical, spiritual, emotional renewal. I need your Holy Spirit, your power and presence in my life. I know I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or how about that last area? Are you living for the right purpose? How did you complete that? For me to live is, is only going to be one answer that matters a hundred years from now, and that's Christ Jesus. It's not for me to live as my career or sports or money or popularity or sex or golf or food or whatever. Would you pray? You could pray with me now. Jesus, I want you to live in my life and I want to live my life for you. And become what you made me to be. And I trust my life to you. And I do that in your name. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we were made for hope. Thank you, Father, that we were made for joy. Thank you, Father, that we were made for you. Would you help us this week as we serve you and commit our lives to others? In your name. Amen.